This talk was given by Shyla Catherine. For more information and a schedule of her events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. So the title of my talk is Mindfulness and Compassion Protecting Oneself and Others. And I'd like to begin by reading a discourse. This is a fairly short one. It's yeah, maybe a page. So sit back, relax, and listen. This is an oral tradition. or we, The teachings that we get from the suttas was originally an oral tradition. So every once in a while, I think it's helpful just to listen to a discourse. And then we'll have some discussion. I'll make some comments and commentary on it. And then we'll have some more discussion, perhaps, in small groups. This is from the Samyutta Nikaya. The Connected Discourses of the Buddha, 47th Collection, Sutta number 19. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling among the Subhas, where there was a town of the Subhas named Sedaka. There the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus thus. Bhikkhus, once in the past, an acrobat set up his bamboo pole and addressed his apprentice thus. Come, climb the bamboo pole and stand on my shoulders. Having replied, yes, teacher, the apprentice climbed up the bamboo pole and stood on the teacher's shoulders. The acrobat then said to the apprentice, you protect me and I'll protect you. Thus guarded by one another, protected by one another, we'll display our skills, collect our fee and get down safely from the bamboo pole. When this was said, the apprentice replied, that's not the way to do it, teacher. You protect yourself, teacher, and I'll protect myself. Thus, each self-guarded and self-protected will display our skills, collect our fee, and get down safely from the bamboo pole. That's the method here, the Blessed One said. It is just as the apprentice said to the teacher, I will protect myself, bhikkhus. Thus should the establishments of mindfulness be practiced. I will protect others, bhikkhus. Thus should the establishments of mindfulness be practiced. Protecting oneself, one protects others. Protecting others, one protects oneself. And how is it that by protecting oneself, one protects others? by the pursuit, development, and cultivation of the four establishments of mindfulness. It is in such a way that by protecting oneself, one protects others. And how is it that by protecting others, one protects oneself? By patience, harmlessness, loving-kindness, and sympathy. It is in such a way that by protecting others, one protects oneself. I will protect myself, bhikkhus. Thus should the establishments of mindfulness be practiced. I will protect others, bhikkhus. Thus 
should the establishments of mindfulness be practiced. Protecting oneself, one protects others. Protecting others, one protects oneself. So this brief discourse is a rather famous or popular discourse that explores a balancing of the compassion of protecting others and the wisdom of protecting oneself through mindfulness. So I want to ask you to consider and to reflect in your own life, in your own practice, in your own daily life perhaps, How does practicing mindfulness function to protect yourself? Can you think of any examples in which being mindful and aware was a way of protecting yourself? Yes, she said, um, it reminds her of what the flight attendants say, that one first puts the oxygen mask on oneself and then assists another who needs help. Yeah, it's very important because if we don't have any oxygen, we're not going to be of much use to anybody. Then they're going to have to rescue us. So we protect ourselves, and then we have the capacity, we have the ability, we have the strength, we have the clarity to be able to be of service to others. What's another example in your life? Please. When you're more mindful, you're more calm, so then you tend to take it out on others less and, uh, you know, basically propagate peace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is a good example, actually, of how practicing mindfulness functions both to protect others and oneself. Because when we're more mindful, we're not so likely to do things that we regret. We're not so like take our angers out and our irritations out on others. And so they're not going to be hurt, and we're not going to experience the regret and the remorse and have to then like figure out what we're going to do to repair the relationship and apologize and make amends. We spend an awful lot of time cleaning up our messes. Even if we're pretty good people, we still sometimes say something wrong and then we have to go through this whole communication process. Okay, it's great to communicate, but you know those kinds of communications are often tiring. <laughs> Because we have to sort of like backtrack on what we said and clarify what we meant and heal the relationship and rebuild the trust. Whereas if we were mindful to start with, we might not have blown it and we might be able to, 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 to just move forward with joy and trust together. Another example of how mindfulness protects you. Uh, mindfulness makes me happy every day. Uh, because it it encourages me to look at nature. I look at the sky every day. I look at trees, flowers. Uh, things are just beginning to bloom. Um, I do live in the Santa Cruz Mountains, so I have a lot of pretty things around me. But what I, I teach students, so I teach students to look at wherever they are. They don't have to be in a, in a park or a forest, but they can be anywhere and find beauty. Yeah, yeah. You know? I love what you started with this. You said that mindfulness makes you happy every day mm-hmm. because it reminds you to look at nature. Right. 
And we can expand that to recognize that mindfulness doesn't, yes, we can see a tremendous beauty around, especially this time of year where things are just bursting forth with all those little leaves coming out and growth happening. It's quite an exciting and energetic time in the natural world, in the plant life in particular. But we can expand that concept of nature to realize that with mindfulness, we become aware of the nature of everything. Not only the beauty of the trees and the the twittering birds as they're making their nests and all the, the, that dynamic. But we also become aware of the nature of the body, which is not always as pretty. Because sometimes the nature of it is to be sick, and to decay, and to have problems. And We also become aware of the nature of the mind and the changing nature of every perception. And so when we start, and one of the terms, one of the, the translations for Dhamma, we talk about this as a Dhamma path. Dhamma can be translated as nature, the nature of things. So we become aware of Dhamma, we become aware of the nature of things, and in particular, the changing nature of things. So right now you might be noticing the beauty of the plants and the birds and the the bugs, but the same quality of mindfulness can also appreciate the whole dynamic nature of life and of every perception, even the ones that aren't so joyful and pleasant on the surface. That's beautiful, beautiful. I think it's okay to to enjoy meditation to enjoy being mindful. Well, what about how does mindfulness function to protect others? Do you sometimes have the intention to be mindful for the benefit of others? If so, how does it benefit others? If you're sitting here being mindful or you're walking around trying to be mindful, how is that of benefit to anyone else? Well, I just have a simple example of just driving, for example. Um, If you have passengers in your car, you want to be mindful that you're driving and paying attention and you're not, your mind is not distracted with thoughts or your cell phone or tinkering with the radio. So then you're protecting others because you're driving carefully and safely. Mm, Very good idea. You know, we drive these, you know, I was going to say metal, but they're mostly fiberglass and plastic these days, aren't they? (laughs) Well, anyway, these at fast paces and fast driving around and in close quarters with everybody going their own ways. And there are fatal accidents all the time. So it's, I think it's really important to realize that everything that we do impacts, can't, can't impacts others. And if we can be careful, if we can be attentive, we might do something to reduce that chance. We can't eliminate it, but we can reduce it. Do you want to pass the microphone? Down? A couple things, and I got a follow-up. Okay, uh, when you get up and you get your day going and, and uh, you're in the shower, you might want to ask yourself, are you in the shower or are you at work? Ah, yeah. You yeah. Know? Because everybody starts their day like that, and you're not like in the present. Yeah, yeah, 
yeah. Showering in the morning shower, it's a great time to ask that question. Yeah. Because it's true. We How many get people a, do that? Yeah. yeah. Think it, about work or ask the question. how far ahead you are. Yeah. 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 The other thing is, um, I, I, I got mindful of something just a couple seconds ago. You know, I graduated in the class of 19, and I think I'm on kind of young side in here. <laughs> uh, the follow-up question is, given our age, how come you're inter- interested in this now? I think that's a pretty fair question. Yeah, yeah. To the crowd. For me, it was trying to slow down the thought process and, fo- uh, and focus. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That, that's all I have to say. Yeah. What occurred to me when you said um, being mindful with others was listening and listening to others um, and, and really hearing what somebody has to say yeah. and not interrupting with your own thoughts or your own solutions, your own whatevers, but really listening to the other person. Yeah, yeah. That's a really important comment because we can, there's a quality of mindfulness that is akin to listening, to really being open, receptive, present with, to just be there fully with what is. Maybe it's a sensation, maybe it's a feeling, maybe it's a thought, maybe it's a perception, maybe it's an emotion, maybe it's a tingle, maybe it's hardness, whatever it is. We, with mindfulness, we train ourselves to accept that that arose and be fully present with it. Not rushing off to something else, or like you said, trying to fix everything, make it the way we think it should be, control everything, make it the way we want it to be. And similarly, when we're really present with another person, listening, it can be a very profound gift to give to another human being, is the quality of mindful and compassionate presence. Hmm. Well, I want to make a few comments just about mindfulness in regards to this particular discourse. Because mindfulness is a quality that is very naturally of benefit and an aspect that protects both self and others. And this protective component to mindfulness, I think, can be um, considered. Because mindfulness guards the mind, and it guards the mind from sliding into actions based upon unwholesome tendencies. We have impulses. We have impulses of greed, impulses of hate, confusion and doubt, and all kinds of unwholesome impulses. They arise. But to what extent do we act on them? To what extent do we give them the space to obsess? our minds and to take over our lives. Mindfulness guards the mind. It protects the mind from sliding into the, falling under the sway of those tendencies. Mindfulness also protects us from the unmindful actions that could so easily cause harm. In order to keep our ethical guidelines There are five ethical precepts that are traditional 
teachings in the Buddhist tradition, actually they go across all religions. Don't kill, don't steal, don't engage in sexual activity that causes harm to self and others. Don't lie and don't abuse intoxicants that um, cause heedlessness and cloud the mind. And so these basic ethical precepts, in order to keep them, we have to be mindful. It's a way of bringing mindfulness into our action. Because if we don't be, if we're not mindful of our action, then we're gonna, we could easily do actions based upon lust, on greed, on hatred, on, on selfishness, on anger, on cruelty. But when we're mindful, then we might see those impulses arise, but we'll stop them. We'll become mindful of them and let them fall away before acting upon them. By embracing the perceptions of the body and the mind in mindful awareness, then we'll find that actually rather naturally wisdom starts to meet our experience. And whatever decisions we make to do something or to not do something, to say something or to not say something, will be made with some reflection, some clarity, some presence, and a kind of balance of mind. When, when mindfulness is established, we will know not only what is happening in the world outside of us, we'll know our response to it. We'll be mindful of our state of mind so that we'll be able to adjust the way we work with and the way we meet whatever is happening, whether it's pain or whether it's pleasure, whether it's wholesome or unwholesome. We'll be able to adjust the way we meet it so that we can meet that experience in a way that increases the wholesome states and decreases the unwholesome states. The quality of the attention, the carefulness of our attention, the way we meet the experience is what we can transform through our mindfulness practice. In this sense, the cultivation of mindfulness naturally brings forth qualities that we associate with protection, with protecting others, patience, harmlessness, loving kindness, sympathy are mentioned in the traditional teachings. This quality of mindfulness is inherently balanced. It's balancing. It balances the mind. It balances all the mental factors. Unwholesome states, the mind is obviously out of balance. Even wholesome states can sometimes get out of balance. So mindfulness can be used to prevent the going out of balance in the unwholesome states, but also to maintain a balance even when the mind is quite pure, quite wholesome. You might wonder, well, what does it mean to be out of balance with wholesome states? Because you'd think we only we want to just cultivate, cultivate wholesome states, and we do. But those states need to be balanced within each other. Like, for example, enthusiasm about our practice is a wonderful quality, but it can be extreme. Sometimes we can, you've probably met people that were a little too enthusiastic and were kind of annoying because they were attached to the way that the, the, the practice was unfolding and everything was so incredibly exciting and mindfulness was going to cure all the evils in the whole world. 
world. <laughs> and sometimes it can be a little bit over the top, that enthusiasm, that it can be excessive exuberance. And so enthusiasm needs to be balanced with a tranquility of mind. There can be exuberant joy sometimes in our practice, but it can get out of hand. Joy has to be balanced. And it can be balanced with some equanimity, with some ease, with just simply seeing the changing nature of things instead of always being happy and excited about whatever is happening. Sometimes we just observe, simple, clear. And that can bring the mind to a quieter place, a calmer place. In meditation practice, we do a lot of introspection. We look in the mind. We look in the heart. We see what our tendencies are. But if it goes to an extreme, it can lead to a kind of excessive withdrawal, an introspection that turns away from the world. And that would be too much. We can also, though, bring an investigative mode to our meditation. But if we are only investigating, we could get restless. So we need to calm that. We can bring excessive energy and effort. I mean, we have to try. If we don't try, we're never going to improve ourselves, right? We need effort. If you don't bring forth the effort, even when you come and sit down here, you got the effort to get in the room, that's good, but you have to keep the effort going even when you're sitting on the chair, otherwise you're just going to go to sleep. But if it's forceful effort, if it's striving effort, if it's demanding effort, it's going to be too harsh. And it's going to either try and control the situation or create more agitation and tiredness in the mind. So whatever we're developing, even when it's wholesome, it needs to be balanced. Concentration is a fabulous quality of mind. But if we're too, if we only develop in concentration, if we're only getting calm, if we're only getting tranquil, we're eventually going to just become dull. The mind dulls, and it doesn't have the vibrancy to really engage with experience. So all of these are examples of ways that, of wholesome qualities that do develop in the course of our practice, but need to be balanced with other complementary factors. And mindfulness helps us to discern what needs to be adjusted in our practice. And as mindfulness develops and the momentum of mindfulness grows, mindfulness has this capacity of naturally drawing everything into a kind of balance so that the mind progresses with a balance of focus and relaxation and spaciousness with a balance of effort and ease, with a balance of tranquility and investigation, with a balance of that calm, concentrated state and that engaged state. So we need that balance, and that's one of the reasons I love the discourse so much, because it's all about balance, right? The acrobat with the apprentice on the bamboo pole doing tricks up there, 
you can imagine they're just holding the pole either, you know, on the shoulder or on the head or on the hand. You know, you've seen acrobats do those things in the circus. It's really remarkable. They can manage to hold somebody up there and that they can do things at the top of a bamboo pole. I mean, they're quite amazing. In some way, it might be that just working with our own mind is kind of an acrobatic act. As we bring mindfulness into our lives and develop our minds, we will start to notice the little traps that our mind tends to slide into. And we'll all have our own favorite traps, the things that kind of like suck us in and we think, oh yeah, this is familiar. This is really familiar. And sometimes we're well sucked in before we realize that it may be familiar, but it may not be so good for us. (laughs) And so we notice that. And we notice that with mindfulness. Can we notice that just with mindfulness, not with judging ourselves, not with criticizing ourselves, not with hating ourselves, not with comparing ourselves to everybody else or to what kind of a spiritual person we think we should be, but just be mindful of that conditioned habit and how it occurred so that we can come back into balance. One of the other things I love about this simile of the acrobats, it's not only about introspection. There's something about the acrobat simile that, to me, is about integrating into the world. And I like that they just have this little chat about, you know, um, uh, doing their act, gaining their fee, and coming down safely. (laughs) I mean, in a way, it kind of is like life, right? (laughs) we muddle through, we make a living, and in it, we live our lives, and we we do our acts. Can we do our acts with a mindfulness that protects ourselves and protects others? Mindfulness is not just an internal process. If we think of mindfulness as only affecting me, only being something that is good for me, just protects myself, then it can get overly self-interested. It could be perceived as only a kind of personalized self-improvement practice, a personal therapeutic process. And in a way, it could, if taken to an extreme isolate us from the social interactions and worldly activities. But the teacher and the apprentice are mutually dependent. They support each other, and their actions affect each other's actions. As they protect themselves, they are protecting the other. In the Satipatthana teachings, Satipatthana is the teachings of the establishments of mindfulness, we find that there are consistent instructions to be mindful internally and externally. Internally means our own experience, and externally means the experience of others. When we know our own experience, we will have insight and understanding about the experience of others. When we know pain in our bodies, we'll have some sense of what another person experiences when they're in pain. When we're mindful of feelings and we know 
the nature of our own feelings, we'll be able to recognize how other people work with and experience their feelings, their mind states as well. With each of the teachings of mindfulness, it specifically says to practice internally and practice externally. But too often when we learn mindfulness, we struggle so hard to be mindful of our own experience that sometimes we never quite get to the instruction or the teachings or the practice to take that out into being mindful of how of others as well. But when we look at the Eightfold Path, the Noble Eightfold Path of this practice, we'll notice that there are also teachings on right speech. How do we speak mindfully? There are teachings on right livelihood. How do we work mindfully? Can we bring all the areas of our life, speech, action, relationship, work, into a mindful experience, a mindful awareness, not only of just what is happening internally, but really how we are engaging with life. I think this is rather important, even though it sounds very, very simple, this mindfulness externally. Too often people perceive their practice as happening with their eyes closed, sitting on the cushion, or sitting on a chair, or just observing the breath. And really, our practice needs to be from the morning till the night. As this gentleman said, what are you doing in the shower? Are you in the shower or are you at work? How we use our minds is how we condition ourselves. So what's happening in our minds? day in and day out. And what happens in our minds affects our speech. That affects our relationships. What are we conditioning in our relationships? And what we think, what we speak, what we organize, what we plan, all that comes through our actions. What are we doing in our lives? I think the extreme of the internal Meditator would be somebody who really is so obsessed with their own experience that all they do is go around being mindful, 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 mindful. And if that gets too extreme, then naturally we have to create a separate practice, perhaps called engaged Buddhism. But I think if we're really practicing mindfulness as the Buddha taught us, then engaged Buddhism merges absolutely intimately the engagement with life and our practice are seamless. They're not separate movements of a meditation and an engaged practice. They are one practice of right mindfulness. So perhaps these references to the acrobats to internal mindfulness, to external mindfulness, and all the encouragements to bring balance to our practice help us gain a greater understanding of how mindfulness simply can protect ourselves, can protect others, 
and must be balanced internally and externally, which implies balanced with compassion, balanced with loving kindness, brought into the way we meet experience. So I'd like to take a few minutes to maybe get into little groups of three or four. And actually, I don't know how many people came with people that they know, but I'd rather you be in different groups. So if you came with somebody that you know, why don't you turn in the opposite direction or stand up and walk across the group? They won't be insulted. I hope you won't be insulted. And the two questions I'm going to ask you are, so how does practicing mindfulness affect other people in your own life? And how might the way that you practice mindfulness serve to promote qualities that explicitly benefit other people in your life? Particularly qualities like patience, like compassion, like sympathy, like loving kindness. How is it that we can approach mindfulness practice so that it's not cold, but it really informs a wise relationship with others? So why don't you just huddle up into groups of three or four, and we'll speak for maybe about 10 to 15 minutes and then come back to the whole group. So I wonder if anything was discussed within any of the small groups that you'd like to bring into the large group. Were there any questions or any particular examples or anything that was came out that was interesting to you? Either that you said or somebody else said? Do you have any comments or questions about this simile of the acrobat on the on the apprentice in relationship to mindfulness? Quick comment uh, from the group I was sitting with. Um, everybody's already doing mindfulness in, in daily life, in real situations, and yeah. in relationships. Um, yeah. It's very wonderful to see. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think when we, when we really do practice mindfulness in relationships, we start to see how how transformative it can be. You know, how incredibly transformative it is to bring this wise and mindful, aware presence right into our, our life. Life. That's when we can really live a spiritual life is when we're really awake for it. Well, Sharon was in our group and, and the thing that, that struck me that she shared that I'm now having to really, and I will be processing for myself, was that self-compassion. Yeah. And I think that's important and something I need to work with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things that intrigues me about this particular uh, discourse is that, that the compassion and the mindfulness are 
through that simile are really one and the same thing. Like really, how do you distinguish between protecting oneself and protecting others, between mindfulness, compassion? And it, it ends up becoming one which I find to be very interesting that if we really embrace and take a mindfulness to heart, it merges with compassion. So when we're mindful of our own experience, we are deeply compassionate with ourselves. Not critical, we're just aware. Ah, yes. When we see suffering within ourselves, we respond with a a tender heart because we're mindful and aware of it. It's really, really quite profound, actually. Sometimes we'll find teachings that separate out, you know, compassion and mindfulness and loving kindness and equanimity and, you know, like like all these are separate things. But that's just for teaching. Because it's, you can only say so much at once and it's easier to remember. And it's, but in reality, the actual experience is like, you know, you're, you're, are you holding somebody up on that pole or are you on the pole doing your act? You know, it's, there's something that's just much more interdependent than all, than, than any, anything of the, of the categories make it appear. Compassion. Compassion for self. Compassion for others. Other questions, comments? Anything you'd like to share from your group discussion? Annie, please. One thing in our group that came up was there was a teacher talking about um, something that she learned from about how to teach and um, how to respond, say, to a student who's maybe not behaving or angry. And um, do you want to <laughs> I think you got an invitation here. <laughs> oh, it's a Dr. Fred Jones out of, um, well, he lives in Santa Cruz. Uh, and he had a 20-year study at UCLA with Madeline Hunter, who was a, we called her the guru of education in California. Anyway, she, um, both of them, and they were behavioral psychologists, put together this study, and they applied it, oh, in all kinds of places, preschools, prisons, uh, high schools, middle schools, colleges, adult education. And it basically was called positive classroom discipline. So what we were taught, he called it the Queen Victoria stance, so you couldn't do this and you couldn't do this, you know. Um, and maybe you were engaging with a student who wasn't doing what they should be doing, or and maybe they were getting a little mouthy with you and you were coming back with them. And he said, none of that works because it just dumps adrenaline for you and for the student. And every time you or the student opens your mouth with something negative or just in anger, you just build this fire, you know. And uh, so he told us to take two deep breaths, <laughs> mm-hmm. very much like we do here, and that gives you time to think. And then basically he taught us to do nothing, not do anything. Just look. He might eventually do what are called air prompts, like ask the student to turn around, you know, face the front of the desk, 
you might hand them a pencil and point to the paper on the desk to get back to work. Uh, so it was all very um, thoughtful toward the student and protecting yourself at the same time, but protecting their dignity, not lashing out at them and letting them lash back at you. That, that ruins the whole class. To me, the lesson, forget the lesson. It's not there anymore. So it was, it was a very interesting approach, and I hadn't had a lot of trouble in class because I think I'm kind of like, you know, the other way anyway, but it, it gave me so much insight into, and, and I did study adolescent psych in college, so it brought a lot of that back up. But you have to understand where people are. You know, if we don't, and we're just in our own head, you know, we wouldn't understand others. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you. Well, we've reached the end of our evening together. It's approaching 9 o'clock. I would encourage you this week, as you develop mindfulness, to recognize this internal and external, the mindfulness of self and others, and in particular, to notice that protective quality that mindfulness has, how it protects self and protects others. And enjoy your week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.